0: Episode 3, McCulloch v. Maryland. Last episode, we discussed Barron v. Baltimore. This week, we are going to discuss the power of the government, and particularly the Necessary and Proper Clause of the Constitution. As you'll see, the way the Supreme Court has interpreted the Necessary and Proper Clause in the Constitution has made it one of the more awesome powers granted to the federal government. So let's turn to McCulloch. What happened? After the Revolutionary War, The United States had significant economic problems. Well, the United States as a whole had no economic problems. It didn't really have a national economy. The states had economic problems. The states had borrowed pretty heavily to finance the Revolutionary War. And when the war was over, they had to repay those debts. In 1789, George Washington's administration came into power with Alexander Hamilton as the Secretary of Treasury. The first thing the House of Representatives did was ask Alexander Hamilton to create a plan for the public credit. Hamilton determined that the new U.S. government should assume the war debts of each of the states and establish a national bank. He believed that the assumption of states' debts would establish credit within the new country as well as abroad and was essential for the commercial future of the United States, and the establishment of the national bank would help create a common currency within the country and raise money for the government. Many in the government didn't want to establish a national bank, and many didn't want the federal government to assume state debts. Virginia had managed to pay off a large portion of its debts, along with some of the other southern states. James Madison and Thomas Jefferson believed that a national bank and the assumption of states' debts would concentrate power in the federal government to an unacceptable degree. They also believed that it benefited the commercial centers in the north, such as New York, at the expense of the agrarian but populous centers in the south, like Virginia, because the states could now literally be forced to foot the bill for the northern states. Following his report on the public credit, the Funding Act of 1790 was presented to the House of Representatives, and was denied passage twice, with James Madison and other southern representatives voting against it. As a result, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison met with each other, essentially the representatives and ideological leaders for what would become the Federalist and Democratic Republican parties, respectively. They negotiated clandestinely over the summer of 1790 and came to an important compromise. James Madison would no longer staunchly oppose the act. However, in exchange for this concession, Alexander Hamilton would help them place the new capital for the United States on the Potomac River, nearer to Virginia and the southern states to the commercial epicenters of Philadelphia and New York. As a result, on July 16, 1790, George Washington signed the Residence Act of 1790 into law, establishing a, quote, site along the Potomac River as the national capital and seat of government, end quote. Shortly thereafter, the Funding Act was passed, allowing the federal government to assume the state's debts. However, the banking issue remained unresolved. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison still opposed the bank. They believed that the bank itself was unconstitutional. Unfortunately for them, the Bank Bill of 1791 passed both houses to be presented to President Washington. Washington was reluctant to sign the bank bill. He was not convinced it was constitutional so he convened his cabinet members and asked them to submit arguments for and against the National Bank in writing. His Secretary of State was Thomas Jefferson, who maintained his position. His Attorney General, Edmund Randolph, also from Virginia, agreed that the bank was unconstitutional. Finally, Alexander Hamilton argued that the bank was constitutional. Hamilton's arguments carried the day, and President Washington signed the bill into law establishing the bank. Semi-ironically, the first bank of the United States was only chartered by law for 20 years. Also ironically, during that 20 years, Thomas Jefferson served two terms as president and left the bank intact. In 1811, the bank's charter expired and was not renewed by an act of Congress. Following the War of 1812, the United States found itself in economic trouble again. In response, President James Madison advocated for the establishment of a second bank of the United States. This would cause John Randolph from Virginia to say Madison out Hamilton's Alexander Hamilton. Again, the bank faced opposition from individual states. One such state was the state of Maryland. As a result, the state of Maryland passed a law which taxed any bank operating in Maryland which was not chartered by the state of Maryland. The head of the Baltimore branch of the Second Bank of the United States, James McCulloch, refused to pay the tax. As a result, Maryland contested the constitutionality of the bank itself in its own courts. The trial court found for the state of Maryland, and the appeals court for Maryland affirmed. The Supreme Court then received the case. Justice Marshall rendered the decision of the unanimous Supreme Court. He first asked, does Congress have the power to make a bank? He goes through some of the history of the United States banks, noting that the bills creating the banks were pretty thoroughly litigated in the congressional system before being passed and signed. He then turned to Maryland's argument, which was essentially that, because the Constitution did not explicitly authorize the creation of a bank, that power was not authorized. Maryland argued that the states were the true sovereigns under the Constitution, not the federal government. Justice Marshall countered by saying that the United States government derived each of its powers directly from the people. Also, the United States, although having limited powers from the people, was supreme within the spheres of those powers. This will come into play later with the Commerce Clause. Justice Marshall continued that while the government did not have the specific power to incorporate a bank, it was important to note that it had the powers to tax, to borrow money, to regulate commerce, to declare and conduct a war, or to raise and support armies and navies. In order to execute these powers, it followed that the government required means to execute the powers. And what is a corporation, like a bank, but an entity created for the purpose of pursuing an end? Now, Justice Marshall quotes the Necessary and Proper Clause, giving Congress the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, that is the powers of Article One, Section 8, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. Maryland had argued that this clause was a general grant of power to Congress to pass laws without it. It could be argued that Congress did not have the power to make any laws. Marshall eviscerates this, that a legislature endowed with legislative powers can legislate is a proposition too self-evident to have been questioned. Maryland further argued that this was a limitation on Congress's power rather than an expansion. Congress could only pass laws which were necessary to carrying out the enumerated powers of Congress. However, Justice Marshall took this meaning differently. He believed that necessary meant that Congress could employ any means which might produce the end. He then looked at Congress's power to establish post offices and post roads from article one, section eight, clause seven, this power implied the power and duty of carrying mail and the power to punish those who steal mail from the post office. These implied powers were not necessary to the establishment of the post office and post road, but they were important to the use of the post office. Finally, the form of the clause was compelling to Justice Marshall. First, the clause was located in Article 1, Section 8. These clauses are the powers of Congress. The limitations of Congress are provided in Article 1, Section 9, and typically begin with no or include shall not, which was another important term to Justice Marshall. The framers could have drafted it to state, no laws shall be passed but such as are necessary and proper. But they didn't. And therefore, the court could not conclude that the clause constrained the federal government's power. The powers of Congress, taken together, made Justice Marshall conclude, let the end be legitimate, let it be within the scope of the Constitution, and all means which are appropriate, which are plainly adapted to that end, which are not prohibited, but consist with the letter and spirit of the Constitution, are constitutional. And the court found that a national bank checked all those boxes. The next question whether the state of Maryland can tax that bank. Once again, Justice Marshall notes the supremacy of the Constitution. He then goes on to say that the power of the federal government to create implies with it a power to preserve that which is created, and the power to destroy, wielded by another entity, is incompatible with the power to create and preserve. And where the power to create and preserve is meant to be supreme, it must be supreme over the opposing power to destroy. And Justice Marshall says... That the power to tax involves the power to destroy, that the power to destroy may defeat and render useless the power to create, that there is a plain repugnance in conferring on one government a power to control the constitutional measures of another, which other, with respect to those very measures, is declared to be supreme over that which exerts the control, are propositions not to be denied. Further, Justice Marshall notes that if this power to tax was carried through, it would inevitably alter the federal government's power under the Constitution. The states could tax the mail, they could tax patent rights, they could tax the judicial process in the state. Any federal process a state didn't like, the state could tax into oblivion. Finally. State taxation over a federal entity inherently taxed the citizens of states over whom the taxing state had no control and who had no representation in the state government. Taxation without representation. Justice Marshall concludes saying that the result is a conviction that the states have no power, by taxation or otherwise, to retard, impede, burden, or in any manner control the operations of the constitutional laws enacted by Congress to carry into execution the powers vested in the general government. Therefore, Maryland could not tax the banks of the United States under the Constitution. As you can see, this case ends up being a huge win for Federalists. The federal government was affirmed supreme over the state governments. This is going to be a recurring theme in the early Supreme Court jurisprudence. It also provided the groundwork for much of the most important legislation in the history of the United States with its view of the Necessary and Proper Clause. Any law which tended to support the government's powers and duties was now in play. We'll see later on how this was used, and has been used throughout our country's history, to create far-reaching legislation, especially in conjunction with the Commerce Clause.